Welcome back to season three of Ruthie's Table Four. We've got a great group of people ahead, and we're going to start with my good friend, with a great director, a great eater of food, appreciator of food, Wes Anderson. I have a few philosophies in life, one of which is to always say yes to Wes Anderson, my really good friend. Ruthie, should we get a sheet from upstairs cupboard and screen fantastic Mr. Fox outside in the garden tonight? Yes, Wes. Ruthie, shall we try again for the fourth time to make a perfect Bellini? Yes, Wes. Ruthie, how about if we invite all the kids and friends and watch Grand Budapest Hotel before it opens in your living room in London? Yes, Wes. And most recently, Ruthie, I'd be happy to do a podcast with you. But could we do the interview by emailing questions and answers back and forth to each other over a few days or weeks? Yes, Wes. So here we are, Wes Anderson with Wes Anderson. A little strange, but as always, I said yes. I'll just jump around with a few things. Maybe for introducing myself, I don't know if I'm responding to something Ruthie is saying. Is Ruthie saying something at the beginning and then I'm chiming in? I'll wait to do that bit. And then you can also, anything you want me to redo or add more, I'll just give a few things to start. Maybe I'll say, um, I'll say... Hello, this is Wes Anderson. I'm going to read you the recipe for the River Cafe Roast Pigeon Stuffed with Cotechino. This recipe serves six. You'll need one small red onion, peeled and chopped, two celery sticks, chopped, two tablespoons of olive oil, plus 25 milliliters for the roasting tin. Got those. Put that on the side somewhere. You'll need a one-half ready-cooked Cotechino sausage, half a sausage, 10 fresh sage leaves, shredded, please. 500 milliliters Chianti. That's a more than a half bottle. And finally... I found a creature with my magic torch. You found a creature... Say that again? I found a spirit with my magic torch. Where did you find it? Down near the stairs. This torch would show Okay. I'll come see it in a moment. I'm just going to finish this recipe. Finally, perhaps most importantly, you'll need six breast pigeons. That's six pigeons from the breast. I guess these are French pigeons. Breast, I think, is near, is near um near Lyon, near Geneva, so near so south of uh, must be almost Burgundy or next to Burgundy or in Burgundy. I'm not sure. And make just make sure they're plucked and cleaned. Now preheat the oven to 230 degrees Celsius. To make the stuffing, soften the the onion and celery in the two tablespoons of olive oil for 10 minutes over a low heat. Small serpent, she says. Uh, Remove the skin from the cotechino and crumble the meat with your hands. Get rid of this, put the skin somewhere else now. Add the cotechino and sage to the onion and celery and fry together for a few minutes. Then pour off the fat from the pan and add 250 milliliters... I'm going to continue. 
Add 250 milliliters red wine and boil to reduce by at least half. Season with black pepper and allow to cool before stuffing into the birds, into the six birds. Heat the 250 milliliters of olive oil in a roasting tin over a medium-high heat. Then brown each bird all over. Season with sea salt and black pepper and place the tin in the top of the hot oven, uh, the upper shelf inside the oven, and roast for 20 minutes. Remove the tin from the oven and take out the pigeons. I'm not sure. Maybe they, maybe we cook them a bit more through. I'm not sure how they come out at 20 minutes. Keep them warm. Pour any excess oil out of the tin, then add the remaining red wine. Over a high heat, reduce that. So we got half the wine still to go, I think. Yes. Over a high heat... And so their pigeons are not in there anymore, so okay. Over a high heat, reduce the liquid by half, so cook it until half it goes away. I think all of the people who cook know this. I don't, I don't know that. Then season with sea salt and black pepper. And then this is your sauce. Pour it over the pigeons to serve. Maybe with some peas or something like that. You've read the recipe for pigeon. Why have you chosen this recipe? Do you cook it yourself? When did you last eat it? Were there any memorable moments that you ate it? Well, I have not cooked any pigeon ever. I I haven't cooked any bird. I can't really cook. I can cook a few things. But uh, I have chosen the recipe for no reason other than the fact that any time I see this pigeon on the River Cafe menu, I immediately order it. Pigeon is my favorite bird. Anyway, and Rue, in fact, once told me about an occasion when he ate a pigeon and he literally began to cry out of happiness. Juman saw the actual tears. Ruthie, I'm in the room here at the Chateau Lacoste, which is extremely comfortable. It's a great place. So far, I have not been out. I haven't seen Richard's gallery yet, which I'm going to go do in, a, in a, about an hour. I've just been doing my work here in the room, which is really all I wanted to do, except for go see Richard's building. You know, one thing I thought might be worth mentioning is for years we do often the first premiere of a new movie I make ends up being one where you're cooking at it. At your house, we had the first public screening of Grand Budapest Hotel in Italy many years ago. We showed Fantastic Mr. Fox on a sheet, and that was the first time anybody had seen it outside of the production. We always plan to do one, as you know, and we always eat very well afterwards. Now I'm going to act like Ruthie's asked me about how do we eat on our movies. Well, you know, on our movies, what we do during the day, we actually, I don't like to stop work in the day. On movies, often you stop and there's a very long break and then it takes even longer to get back from the break. So the way we've been doing it is we have these little tables. They're made to be folded into suitcases and we set them up on the right on the side of the set and the people who are actually working on the set, which is kind of a small group, other people working building sets and things, they have a different experience. But the group on the set, we have our lunch there and it's brought out and for years, I tried to make it just soup and to convince everyone that we would just eat soup and then get right back to work. But we did have some very good soups. In Germany, there was a shop across the street from the hotel that we lived where they would make soups for us every day. But 
Most people don't just want soup, and eventually there was a mutiny. In particular, our key grip, Sanjay Sammy, said you can't push a dolly all day and just only eat a thin soup. We started bringing Sanjay his own steaks and things. But the thing we do also is when we finish the shooting for the day, we always have a dinner with the whole cast and the department heads, that group. We all live together in a small hotel usually, and we have our own little dinner room and cook. We always have great dinners at the end of the day. Almost invariably, everybody who's working in the cast and in those departments is there for dinner. Our costume designer usually shows up very late, sometimes close to midnight, but we keep a plate for her and usually a plate for the extremely large team of helpers who roll in. It just reinforces how dedicated she is because she works into the late hours. You know, I've done a lot of work in restaurants over the years. Noah Baumbach and I, we wrote a movie in Barpiti in New York. We we were there for probably six hours a day for for a year. And we still go there, of course, in New York. That's our canteen. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Ruthie, am I allowed to turn the tables for a moment in this podcast and ask about, well, I've always loved the history of the River Cafe. You know, I've looked at the plans that show how it grew over the years from a little room, which was a canteen for Richard's firm, for Rogers, Cirque, and Harbor. Was it always called? Was it a, were, were those partners all there in the beginning? Can I ask you to tell a bit about the beginning of the River Cafe and what it was like and who started coming there? And was it only at lunch at first? It reminds me of the commissaries of the old studios, which used to be such busy places. And I remember when Owen Wilson and I first went to Los Angeles to go to work, essentially, we... Our producers, James L. Brooks and Polly Platt, they had their offices were in the Sydney Poitier building on the Columbia lot, which was in Culver City, and it was the which had been the MGM lot. And the commissary was still a busy place. I mean, there were sort of two, but the, uh, but I don't know how much people use those anymore, or if they're even there. But they were play. I you know I when we're, when I'm doing a movie, when I'm working on a movie. I try to have the lunch be briefest experience it possibly can be. We do it on the set. We bring tables onto the set itself. And we, the people who are working on the set just have a 15 minutes or something like that. That's, that's the way I like to do it. But I love to have a... I, so I like the idea of having the canteen right there in the workplace. But then to have a canteen that grows into the river cafe... That's an unusual 
story. Can I ask uh, some nostalgic recollection of the beginnings of it and the evolution of it? Or Hi, Wes, it's Ruthie. Um, I'm sitting here looking at Santa Margarita and wishing you were here. It seems wherever I go on holiday, I wish you were there and I can understand why. So it's interesting, your question, and I'm really happy to turn the table or have you turn the table on me. When Richard finished the Pompidou, after six years of living in Paris, working in Paris, creating that building. The view to going back to London was to create kind of, almost like you were describing, a studio community with open space, with common rooms, and a place to eat, whether it was commissary or canteen, that there would be a place where people could meet and talk over food. Very often what we did, in Paris, in a cafe or a bar, on the way to the office or the way back. And I think what he did not want was to be just an office in a large building and then everybody disappeared at midday and came back to work. So I think when they found the warehouses on the Thames, it was completely ideal because it was out of the center, it was on the river, it had the possibility of a green space. He actually tore down a building that blocked the view of the river uh, and made that into a communal garden. Because it was quite large, there were spaces taken by other architectural firms, there was a space taken by a kind of set designer, there was one taken by a framer, and so everybody was there doing different kind of creative things. And then the challenge was where to eat, what to do with that space. And I can remember very few decisions or decisions, I think, that you can actually remember being made in your life. But I do remember that we were on a ski holiday in Switzerland and Richard had sent out, the office had sent out all sorts of applications for people who might want to open a restaurant, a cafe, a canteen in the Thames Wharf and I turned to Richard and I said, you know, the only thing worse not having a place to meet and to eat but do we have something mediocre? Maybe I'll do it. And I had come back from Paris. We had just had Beau, who was by that time four. Brew, as you know, was sort of 15 with Jaman at the American School. And so that's kind of how we started the River Cafe. Rose and I met, I knew that Rose had worked with the McNally's and New York, and she was back in London really wanting to cook. And, you know, I was a domestic cook, so I knew nothing about working in restaurants. But I always say also that restrictions are sometimes the best things you can have. And we definitely had restrictions. We had a very small space. We had a very low budget of what we could create. And we also had the council, which for some reason really was against having anything in a residential area. So they only allowed us to open to the people who worked in the warehouses and only at lunch. But then as word spread that this was going on, that there was a place in Hammersmith where you could go and have a pasta or a sandwich or Italian ingredients that we were starting to get. Faye Mashler, in her first review of the River Cafe, wrote in the Evening Standard, I'm going to tell you about a restaurant you cannot go to. And of course, it was a big struggle for us because it was very hard to make money. We were competing not against other restaurants or cafes, but against the sandwich girl who would bring sandwiches on her bicycle. 
So really, like your idea of the, of the commissary in a film, or working in a film, and having you know tables brought in, was exactly what Richard wanted, to have a place where people could work, eat, go over for a coffee, talk about a drawing. That's why we had the paper tablecloths, and we still do, so that the architects could draw while they sat there. We also wanted to be much more cafe, cantini, because if we had linen tablecloths or no tablecloths, it, it wouldn't be right. And in fact, not long ago, the Michelin people came in and said, you know, we could give you a second star, but you've got to lose the paper. That is something we'd rather have than a star. I think that it's best to have paper tablecloths, not just on every table everywhere, but on every surface everywhere, because you never know. Something always comes out of the fact if you have a paper tablecloth and a, and a pen, this is always a great combination. Everybody's going to do something. So here's me pretending we're having the conversation again. Well, I live partly in Paris, and when we're in England, where we partly live, we eat at home every night, and when we're in Paris, we uh, go out to dinner every night. When I, when I was first s s kind of living in Paris or spending more time in Paris, Juman and I, Juman, my wife, we used to try new restaurants continuously, and um, then over the years, the thing I realized... My favorite kind of restaurant is a restaurant where I've already been. A, a restaurant where I know the place, I, I sort of know where I would like to sit and what I want to order already. And in France, I think it, if you're a foreigner, it helps if you're, you're a familiar face in the restaurant. If you've been there uh, 30 times, that's a good way to establish yourself there. I will say in France, I... I have a tendency to eat the, um, I wouldn't call them the healthiest dishes, the, uh, the confit of duck and uh, quite a few lamb chops and, um, and more pigeon. You asked about Bar Luce in Milan. Well, you know, we made this sort of restaurant bar, Bar Luce in Milan. It's what Mucha Prada wanted, something like a kind of classic spot. And the sandwiches are very good. They make extremely good cocktails and things and lots of sweets and things like that. Gelato. I guess I was trying to make a place and try to draw on different places we love, like a bit of Nino in Rome and a bit of a place called New York Burger Town that's on... What is it, 43rd Street, 57? I can't even remember where it is, near St. Pete's? Is that the cathedral? Gosh, I can't remember where it is. They have these, if it's still there, they have these tables where you sit more like desks with little arms to the tables. Wondering if there one, is there one to mention in Paris or Rome? That In Rome, we like to go to Nino, we like to go to Tullio, we like to go to Pierluigi, but maybe our other favorite place to go eat in the world is... Tokyo. Every now and then we find ourselves in Japan and there is careful and interesting and inventive and perfectionist with their, with their cooking uh, as anyone in the world. Maybe, I guess on some level, it's the Japanese food and the Italian food that leads the way these days. I particularly love Japanese food, but, you know, an interesting thing, the last time we were in Japan, we were there for a couple of weeks probably, and at the end of our stay, our friend 
Kahn had been trying to convince us to go to this Italian restaurant. And I was like, I don't want to go to Italian restaurant. Signale Inoteca. The chef was called Toshiji, Tomori. Well, anyway, finally, the last night we were there, we, we just went with going to the Italian place. Well, you would be very impressed because uh, it would be one of the better ones outside of Italy and the River Cafe. I'll act like you asked about when we went on the boat. Yes, we went on the Queen Mary 2, and we had a group with us, Jason Schwartzman and Roman and Roman's wife, Jenny and uh, Tilda Swinton, Sandro, Cop, and me and my wife, Juman, and we really all had a great time. I mean, when the boat arrived from New York to England, we tried to convince them to let us sail on to... Germany, but um, they had to bump us out of our rooms. And we showed our movies and things and did little talks during the journey. One of the great things was we had this room and it was on the opposite end of the boat from the kitchens. I mean, there are probably many kitchens on there, but we often arranged to have a curry dinner that we watched them roll the cart down a corridor that's probably about a kilometer long, and it was very good. We had very good dinners on that boat. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. All right. So Wes Anderson. There was Wes Anderson, Michael Caine, and Jake Gyllenhaal, who were our first three podcasts and when we didn't really know what we were doing we thought we might be just doing a recipe so we asked Wes to choose a recipe and he chose a recipe from the blue book which was published in 1994 soon to be 30 years old and it has Chianti Classico it's stuffed with Kotakino and it's a breast pigeon which coming up to Christmas is very Christmassy it's a bit like the Bolito Misto using the Kotakino Chianti, what do you think about that recipe? It's one of those dishes that people who have worked in the River Cafe a long time ago come back and eat, and they're like, it's like the menu was (laughs) (laughs) from when I was here before, because it's one of those dishes, it's timeless. It's a timeless dish, isn't it? I remember when I learned to cook pigeon when I was a young chef here, and how you guys would would say don't cook it like we're in rules or a gentleman's dining club it's not got to be served so pink that it's you're ripping off the bone yeah. it can be cooked more like an arrosto misto yeah. and cooked so it's so it's maybe cooked a bit slower but so you can eat the whole 
yeah. pigeon. And, you know, Richard would literally, <laughs> the whole pigeon. You'd, you'd see him kind of cutting off the legs and then picking them up. Yeah. And it's a great bird to have when we don't have the game season. So when we don't have grouse or partridge or pheasant, and then we can have pigeon, you know, all through the other seasons, don't we? Yeah. I mean, as as an animal, I might offend people, but I really have a real aversion to pigeons, generally. Maybe the Brits like the thought of eating them rather than having the seeing them fly square. <laughs> I was talking to Danny about it, and he was saying, you know, pigeon, in a way, it's so rich. It kind of can also almost taste like foie gras. Yeah, it's one of the ingredients that we can be flamboyant with, I feel. Yeah. You can put things with it that you think, I can do a really decadent dish with this pigeon. <laughs> Often you can put things like lardo, fresh yeah. chestnuts, cook it in Vinsanto if yeah. if we want to be really swanky and you can really change the dish by just altering the, even the wine yeah I like doing it so especially when we do Vilschen and red wine and you're thinking using so much red wine and then you think about what we can use as a as a white wine as you say a Vinsanto white wine but we um, do them on bread so we can do yeah. them we do them with bruschetta with cavallonero mm. It's quite a versatile ingredient. Yeah, and you can do them in the summer with peas, locally. Yeah, peas, oh, that's very nice. Vignoles. Yeah. And so Wes, I think the recipe that he chose, it's a bit eccentric, and the way he reads it is eccentric, but it's good. Let's hear what else Wes has to say about his memories of food, growing up, cooking and eating. Can you describe a typical meal when you were a child? What was the food who cooked it? Can you paint a picture of a family meal? Well, when my parents were together, I think it was more of a communal type family meal. But most of my childhood, my mother was studying after my parents had split. My, my mother decided she would like to be an archaeologist. So for 10 years, she was working on studying for her master's and then her PhD. And she did all this. And she was taking care of three boys all the time. It was a little more... Um, uh, thrown together, and um, she was juggling a lot of things. Wes, as a young boy, what is your earliest food memory? I was known as w the one who liked hamburgers. My older brother was known as the one who liked hot dogs. I was Ernie, he was Bert. I drove the police car, he did the radio. I f think for most things, anytime there was there were there were um, two options, we always shared that we did we never competed for the options we 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 identified with different ones and that became part of our ritual there was nothing typical a a every night was a different venue and a different situation and i think possibly over the, the over the years this may lead to ha why i've always liked to eat in restaurants in fact i tend to if I'm not working on a film, I tend to work at home and until the thing I do is to go out to dinner. That's the main, uh, often I haven't left my residence until dinner. Now you mentioned food in high school. Well, I went to two high schools. First, a, a public high school. There was a cafeteria lunch counter, but I, I think I brought my lunch in a sack and I don't really remember much. But then I went to another school, the school where we made Rushmore. And that school had a system that was a little more, um, it wasn't like a public school system. It was a thing where they run you a tab and they send the bill to your parents. There was much more freedom in what you could eat. It was more like having a, a kind of canteen on the school campus, uh, which was new for me. But 
the food was not memorable in either location, really. Although I will say, I don't know if I'd even heard of bagels before going to this school. And um, bagels did not become a huge part of my life. But I guess I started to see there was a lot out there that I didn't know about in terms of uh, things to eat. When did you first meet Ruthie? Rough date, place, talking voice. Do you remember what the event was, what you ate? Who else was there? Any color to bring it to life? Some storytelling. Well, you know, I first met Ruthie in Italy. I had met Rue already. Rue is Juman's middle school friend and then lifelong friend since then. So I I, um, consider myself... As of late arrival, nevertheless, I just um, insert myself into the, both families. We rented a house in Tuscany, which we thought was in the middle of a, a, a vast, empty countryside surrounded by vineyards, but it was actually surrounded by several other houses connected to it, all filled with fa- families and busy. And then slowly we began to hear a lot of noises and we realized we weren't in an isolated place at all. Then we got a call from Rue to go where they were, and we went down to your house, Ruthie, to where you were staying, where you often have stayed, and for many years, and it was much better. We were much happier there. The people were very interesting and wonderful, and the food was wildly improved over what we were eating where we were, and along with all that, well, I met you, and... Also, while I, who happened to be there at the time, was Rafe Fines, who I had met before, but who on this occasion was preparing the earliest stages of his adaptation of Coriolanus. And he showed me a little um, clip he had made, but he also played. I asked how he was going to do a certain speech, and he did it for me in close quarters. He, in fact, just a few inches away from me, and it was extremely powerful. And in that moment, I had the thought that I particularly wanted to write a movie for Rafe, and my friend Hugo and I set to work on that shortly thereafter, and we actually did the movie, and Rafe actually played the part. In some of your films, you have starched linen, waiters, costume, trays of drinks, beautifully presented. Ah, yes. Well, you know, that's a question about food in relation to my own movies I've made. And I can say two of them. One is uh, in the Grand Budapest Hotel, there's a dinner during which the whole story of the movie is kind of told. And I've always loved an old menu. I like seeing uh, first what they used to eat and what they have involved, what we don't eat that people used to eat, how the preparations and things have evolved. And as we know, often a, a, a dinner in a, in a luxurious restaurant used to involve many, many courses and a lot more food. Um, and, um, I, you know, I, I've always, I, I, A.J. Liebling wrote about food in, in a way I have always, that's, I, I think is, he's the funniest writer about food. And um, we use some of that in another movie, The French Dispatch. And that one, we do have a tray of drinks, which shows everything from the, uh, aperitif that you would have at three o'clock in the afternoon to the strongest uh, digestif uh, at the very end of the night, all spinning on one round tray. I mean, we made our own versions of each, I guess. I think, uh, well, also in French, we have a cook and we tell a whole story of a cook and we have some peculiar dishes that he makes. In fact, pigeon, 
uh, I think we call it a city park pigeon hash. His food is meant to be specialized in in a food for uh, police working on locations on stakeouts and things like that. So it has some special characteristics that make it more suited to that. So that I've come to the end of the questions. Wes, it's a few weeks later, and we are almost done. I'm in the edit with Willem, and you've done a brilliant podcast, I have to say, and it's ready to go. But there is one question that I need to ask you, because that's what I do for every single person who's on the podcast, and that is, what, Wes Anderson, is your comfort food? Ruthie, I'm answering your last message now. It's some weeks later. I always liked the Italian hamburger, the asce di manzo, with butter and sage sometimes. That is uh, one of my favorites, which you sometimes see on the menu here or there. I would recommend it if somebody crosses paths with it. Thank you, Ruthie. Thank you for listening. We're going to be back next week with another great guest. And meanwhile, we're here. If you want to contact us, if you have ideas, if you have thoughts, please let us know. Ruthie's Table 4 is produced by Atomized Studios for iHeartRadio. It's hosted by Ruthie Rogers. It's produced by Willem Malinsky. Our executive producers are Zad Rogers and Faye Stewart. Our production manager is Caitlin Paramore. This episode has additional contributions by Sean Winnowen. Special thanks to everyone at the River Cafe. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.